Well, good morning. Good morning. If you were here last week, uh, there were a whole lot more people sitting over here on this side because we celebrated baptism. And this morning in first service, those folks got to see that replayed. And um, it was awesome to see that last week and to celebrate it again this morning. So I just want to encourage you to continue to encourage Josh and Bethany um, as they as they walk through life with Jesus and as uh, their baptism represents a new phase in their life and how God's going to work. So we want to celebrate that with them and continue to encourage them. And in light of what we're talking about today, it's it's relevant because we're talking about Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We've been studying it for the past several weeks and uh, we, we were supposed to finish chapter 1 last Sunday and Brent told you that I had a little mishap and I don't look much worse for the wear. I'm not now. Uh, I had a little spill off of my son's scooter. I wish it was a motorized scooter because then I'd have an excuse, but I don't. It's one of those little pedal power ones and I ate the asphalt. Literally, I introduced my face to the cement in front of our house, busted some teeth, got a concussion, lacerated my thigh muscle, um, scuffed up my face pretty good. So I'm, I'm better now. Modern dentistry has fixed my, my three broken teeth. My face is healed. And despite the fact that I hit my head pretty hard on the ground, I've had concussions before, but uh, this one was in the you know, moderate range, but it hurt. Despite the fact that that happened, I managed to remember to bring my Bible on stage with me this morning. I love Brent. If you weren't here, you don't get that. Brent got up here last week and he's like, I left my Bible at the welcome desk. So anyway, there's my dig for Brent. I love you, Brent. Um, so if you have your Bible this morning, if you uh, want to flip to Ephesians 1 and bookmark it, if you have your tablet, whatever you're using to, to follow along, uh, the verses will also be on the screen. You can follow there if you like. Now, I, I want to clarify something here. I know that Paul wrote this letter. It's a letter, right? So it's, it's a continuity of thought. And so he wrote it to us in the order that he intended for the church to read it, the church at Ephesus, and, uh, and also for us. But when I was listening to Brent last week, I was sitting back here and I was listening to him preach and I was taking furious notes because what he was saying was just resonating with me. And I'm also sitting there going, how am I going to back the bus up just a little and cover the end of Ephesians 1 when he started in Ephesians 2? And that was my problem, not his, because he didn't fall off a scooter. And so what I noticed as I was listening to him talk and as I had already started to work on my message uh, was it actually fits rather nicely together. And that's the beauty of scripture, particularly within the same letter, is we get this sense that the author has an idea he's conveying. So no matter where we start in Ephesians, we pick up on that because it's a letter of encouragement and, and so on. And so I think it fits well. And I think what, what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write here, we're going to see it again. But I want us to look at kind of the richness of where we've been in the last few weeks. There's a lot in this letter in the early stages. And uh, I want you to remember that it, it's, this letter really is about God spelling out his plan for salvation. When he chose us, those of us who are Christians, when he chose us in Christ... And that he did that before the foundation of the world. The letter tells us that. Paul tells us that. And so uh, that's where we're going to start today. We're going to uh, recount this section that, that Bible scholars call the, the, uh, the spiritual blessings in Christ section. That's where we were in, in chapter 1 uh, when we looked at verse 3 to 14. And we learned that it was Jesus who secures our salvation. And Paul, will, he'll go into this a little bit later. And this is what I mean about like kind of these threads weave through the letter. Because in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, he's going to get into the, for it is by grace you have been saved. And this, not from yourselves, but it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So we're going to see that play out. I, ironically, not really ironically, we're going to land there on Easter Sunday. 
Great message for Easter. So as you think about, you know, if you're inviting a friend to Easter, if you know somebody who needs to be encouraged in their faith walk with Christ, if you need to know, if you know somebody who needs to be introduced to Jesus, great Sunday to invite them. Um, and, and maybe this person, you know, think about it, pray about it. Maybe it's somebody who is curious and seeking already. Maybe it's somebody who, because of the relationship you have, they'd just be willing to say, I'll go to church with you. Maybe they'll say, well, I'll be willing to go to church with you if you'll shut up and leave me alone in the future. Whatever. That's a Sunday to invite them. Don't worry, we won't tell them it was a setup. Uh, but invite away. Then two weeks ago, Wes was up here, and he talked to us about uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, and uh, the thanksgiving and prayer section of this letter. And this whole beginning of Ephesians is called the doctrinal section, and that's important. And so in, in the thanksgiving and prayer uh, piece that, that Wes addressed, he talked to us, you remember, about the love and the faith of the Ephesians, the love they had, and the idea that they were leaving a legacy of love to those who followed them, and a legacy of faith. And then finally, last week, Brent took us into chapter two, and we looked at the first three verses. And he reminded us that if we are followers of Jesus today, if we call ourselves Christians, that's great. It's fantastic. And that's what we want for people, is that they would know Christ. But he also told us that, and we saw this as Paul said what some of you were, we saw that at one time all of us were wrapped up in sin, we were enamored with sin, we were living sinful lives, we were making sinful choices, pursuing sin, not making poor decisions. We were following after sin. And we were living out disobedience. And he, said, he used this term that Paul uses, he says we were enslaved by our sin. It's like we couldn't escape it. And as Brent said, we were among the walking dead. Now, I've never seen so many people walking around here pretending to be zombies. Uh, some adults in the foyer, when they saw the title, and a bunch of kids, I saw kids walking like zombies. I don't know how it spread. I think somebody got the idea, and then it just kind of spread around. But the, the idea that the walking dead, um, remember that Brent told us that it was the power of God manifested through Jesus that leads to salvation. That as it says in, in chapter 2, verse 5, that we, and Brent foreshadowed this a little, he said we were made alive in Christ. We're no longer among the walking dead. And so even though we're not covering that aspect of made alive in Christ today, it's something to remember, it's something to celebrate, not to, just today, but every day. And that's why I mentioned about baptism. That was a celebration of that change in the lives of those two young people. And so we want to know Jesus better. We want to look more like him, and we want to walk more closely with him. Now, before we dive into today, I just want to pause briefly, and uh, I want to pray, because I really want God to speak to each of us, uh, depending on where we're at. His message is, um, he has the message for the church, but sometimes he's got a specific message for individuals. So let's pause and ask him to bless our time together. God, thank you for the people gathered here today, and thank you for the work that you are doing in their lives. And God, whether they know Jesus as Lord and are following after him or whether they're just considering Christianity uh, or wondering about things of faith, God, I, I pray you speak clearly to each of us that for those of us who follow Christ, we would set a good example, God, that you would remind us, encourage us, convict us that what we do matters, that how we live matters because other people are looking to us for answers and to see what a difference salvation makes. And God, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Lord, I pray you would begin uh, to do a work that you might further what you've already started in their hearts and that the time would bless them. God, that your Holy Spirit would speak clearly to each of us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, 
before we jump into, into verse 18, I want us to look real quick again at verse 17, which is what, where Wes left off. And I'm going to read from the New International Version here and listen to Paul's prayer. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now listen to this. So that you may better know him. Now the idea that he's expressing here of knowing him better is deeper than just trivial knowledge. It's not like reading Jesus' Wikipedia biography and a little bit of information about him. Knowing him better, as he goes on in verse 18, is, is more like this. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The, the Greek word here that he uses for enlightened uh, is the word fotizo. And... Uh, it's, I put it in your program there. No, that's not a typo. That's what it looked like in the Greek. Photizo is where we get the English word photograph or photography. Now, I have a confession to make, and, and the people who work with me know this because they hear me harp on this all the time. My wife and my kids are certainly aware of it, especially my youngest son, Nate, as he's learning to write and to compose essays. They know this about me, and you may hear some snickers when I say it, but I love words. Uh, I, I love the subtleties and the intricacies of the meaning of words. I love their common meaning as well as the things that are harder to pick up on. I love the semantics of words. If you've ever heard that expression, oh, that's just semantics. It means the subtle things about a word. And I love semantics because the range of a word helps me better understand what the author's trying to say, particularly if it's a complicated word. And so what Paul's conveying here with this word fotizo is, uh, like I said, it's where we get photographed from, but it's the idea of illuminating the subject, um, or better yet, creating spiritual clarity to what he's trying to teach us. And my favorite definition of fotizo is the idea of imbuing, another big word, knowledge, like injecting it, covering the canvas with understanding. And for us, that means saving knowledge so that we fully comprehend Jesus and his blessings, the blessings of Christ. And so Paul gives us this word picture, um, and he uses two unique realities here to help the Ephesian church and to help us with our, our, um, our understanding of our hope in Christ. It's two things. It's our future hope, which is eternity with God, that he mentions actually back in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, when he talked about the Holy Spirit being the deposit that guarantees our inheritance. That's future hope. But then there's this other aspect of the word where he's talking about our present hope, which is this power in Christ for living. So future hope in eternity with God, with Jesus, but power for living here now. Now, you may, I'm going to use a, uh, an image or a couple images to, to show you this. You may look at a photo like the one that's coming up on the screen behind me here. And perhaps you recognize uh, that it's a church. It is a church. Um, maybe you recognize more than that. Like maybe you know something about architecture. That's Gothic architecture or Gothic inspired architecture. Uh, maybe you know that. Maybe you don't. <clears throat> maybe you've seen this church. It's not far from Paris. It's actually in the northwest, sort of across uh, the river from Paris in the northwest part of the city. It probably used to be nowhere near Paris, but Paris is massive now. Maybe you don't know that either. Uh, believe it or not, this church, this is not Gothic revival like some of the churches in my hometown. The church I grew up in looks a lot like this. This church was actually built in the 13th century. It's old. And if I had a problem with centuries and numbers when I was a kid. If you don't know when that is, that's the 1200s. So this church is, you know, 900-ish years old. Uh, so what? What's my point? Well, 
it, it, the picture doesn't do any justice in terms of kind of creating like a captivation as to its beauty, right? It's kind of boring and dull, very linear. Doesn't do it any justice in the, wow, what a beautiful building picture. But this picture, this next picture changes that. Now, maybe you know this painting. Maybe you don't. Um, maybe you know the title of the painting. It's called The Church at Auvers. It's by Van Gogh, my favorite artist. Uh, I told the first service, not because he's Dutch. I'm not Dutch, I'm Irish, Scottish, so it has nothing to do with Dutch, but this is my favorite work by Van Gogh that, other than Starry Night. He completed this in June of 1890, about 30 days before he took his own life. He killed himself. Uh, Van Gogh, most people believe, and it's been said that, that he was a Christian, that he loved God. He went through these periods of torment in his life where he was distant from God. Uh, Starry Night, you see part of that when he painted Starry Night. The church was the only building devoid of light in the city, and it was a period in his life where spiritual darkness was running. But this is at a different point in his life, and he paints the church, and he bathes it with these rich colors. And today, this painting hangs in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and I hope to see it one day. Um, but I, I'm betting here when you look at this picture, you don't just see a plain old boring building anymore. There's some new things have happened here with the color and whatnot. And uh, if, you, if you don't appreciate art, I can't help you see it. Uh, I'm sorry that if that's the case, uh, I'll try not to hold it against you. My dad was one such person, did not appreciate art, partly because he was colorblind. And so for him, things like this just represented a montage of bleh. And he, didn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't quite appreciate it. Uh, it was interesting, his, when I was a kid, he was a police officer, and so getting dressed for work was never a problem. But sometimes the things he put together for social occasions were not quite so, so coordinated. And so he would not appreciate this painting per se. It would just be a bunch of strange uh, colors to him. Um, but for me, this painting is imbued with vibrancy. It's like there's, there's things injected here. The, ca the canvas is saturated with these rich colors, like this blue cobalt in the sky. And uh, you start to look at things like, I like Van Gogh's linear distortion. He kind of, if you look at the roof line, it's not linear 90 degree angles. For, it's not hard angles. It's kind of these soft things. And, and it draw, this kind of thing draws me in, the, the, the green and the flowers. And uh, you can tell that there's sunshine injected here on the side of the building because the brick's not all the same color. You get these pink hues and whatnot. And it draws me in. And I'm enlightened by the artist in an abstract image to more fully appreciate the real building, the actual, the photograph. So the next time I see the building, it's not the building that I think of. It, it, because I like art and I like Van Gogh and I love this painting and his use of color here, I actually start to remember the building through the photograph but looking at, with, at this in my mind because it's been imbued in me and I start to talk about it and I maybe get excited and say, oh man, have you ever seen the painting of the church? at Over. And maybe I start to blither on because I do that about the details of the building. Like, oh, it was a 12th century painting and it's in the Musée d'Orsay and I'm alive, I'm excited about it because of an abstract. And it's inspirational for me. Now, you're probably going, okay, you've got some weird hobbies. Like you're into words and you're into abstract impressionistic art or post-impressionistic art. Maybe I need to get a different hobby. But I think Paul does this here with the text too. I think Paul does something uh, in order to help us more deeply appreciate and to realize what God intends for you and me. And I think it's essentially, it's about how we see Christ. And I'm not suggesting that we see Christ in the abstract. On the contrary, I think he's trying to help us see Christ for who Jesus Christ is. Look again at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you may know the hope to which 
He's called you. He obviously doesn't mean your heart as in the muscle in the center of your chest that's pumping your blood. It's an abstract. He's talking about your heart as in the center of your moral judgment, the seat within you that discerns right from wrong, that gives you your passions and your convictions. Um, it's the place where we, our thoughts are handled and our decisions are made and the course of action that we choose comes from. Christians, we call this our sense of conviction, right? It's what, what are your convictions? What are your fundamentally deeply held beliefs? And this is, this is where the change occurs when Jesus is in the center of a person's life. Christ affects and he transforms our hearts. And he reshapes not just how we think, but ultimately how we live. And we call that, when it goes from what you think to how you live, we call that divine guidance for living. Divine guidance. And so our heart as the center of our being is this deep inner awareness of the Holy Spirit. And it's where sensitivity to his message of change and calling in our life resonates most clearly when we're following Christ. That's important. And so if you're a Christian, I wonder if there's something that you now see differently since you became a believer, since you began to follow Jesus, I wonder if he's begun to imbue you with his truth. Uh, and and as, as he now guides you in how you live, uh, if that has changed things for you. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians are the only ones with deeply held convictions and, and even moral principles. I'm not saying that at all. But I wonder if God has shaped your perceptions of people to be different, about how you see them since you became a Christian. I wonder if he's now calling you in a different direction, relationally speaking, or in terms of how you see the world around you. Very recently, just a, a week or so ago, we had a lady who's connected to someone who attends our church here. She, uh, his mom actually, she accepted Christ. She came to faith. She professed Jesus. Uh, that was quite exciting news when we heard that because as a staff, we'd been praying for this family for a while because we'd heard that, that the mom was, was headed towards faith in Jesus. And so we've been praying for that since last year sometime. In fact, she's one, I believe, she's one of the ones that was on our list of 240 some people that we were praying for. So she accepted Christ and she recently took a trip with some friends and, and some family up on ground mountain. And if you've been up on grouse on a nice day, it is absolutely stunning. On a lousy day, it's neat. It's pretty. But on a, on a, on a beautiful day, it is unbelievably stunning. I remember one of the first things my family and I did when we moved here is we took the gondola up and I just looked at the city and I went, whoa. And it's incredible how from a distance and up above, everything can be so beautiful. Even though you know there's problems and there's issues and there's even ugly down there. But man, it was beautiful. And she saw this and she made the comment, and I'm not going to get it exactly right because I wasn't there, but it was, the, sh the story was relayed to me. She made the comment, it's like, look how beautiful it is. Look at all the color. It's like, it's like I'm seeing it through God's eyes for the first time. Now that's fascinating. It's like she's been imbued with knowledge of creation to see it in a different way. What about you? Do, do, you, do you see your marriage differently now since Jesus has come into your life? Do you suddenly realize the gift and the treasure in your spouse that God has given you? I need to realize that more. Do you, do you see that? Is your marriage different now? Do you handle your finances differently now? Because God has laid some convictions upon your heart and he's challenged you and he's called you to give to some things that he is doing. Maybe a refugee relief or homeless ministry or something. Do you now see your money differently? 
Has he changed your mind in terms of, uh, as you've studied the scripture and as you've sought God's wisdom and God's answers around social issues, on things like the sanctity of life debate on abortion, has God changed your thinking on that through the study of his word? Do you now look at broken relationships, long broken relationships, differently? Do you now seek resolution as opposed to just kind of hanging around waiting, sincerely hoping that someday the person will come to you in a bid to reconcile what's broken? You see... I really believe this. I believe that when we're enlightened to Christ's power for living, that we, we slowly begin to see everything differently because we're imbued with new knowledge, with truth that he intends to set us free. And when we begin to act on it, it becomes a thing of beauty. And particularly, particularly in the lives of Christians because the transformation is often profound right? You know your story. You know your testimony. You know who you were before Christ. And so this idea is, is also shared and in, in, in relayed in John's gospel. And he quotes Jesus speaking in chapter 16, verse 8. John quotes Jesus when he says, and he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then a little further down in in verse 13 and verse 14, he says this. Jesus promises, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. And so we get this idea that as a holy Christian, as a Christian allows the Holy Spirit to lead, our principles shift and new things are formed in our thinking. And we begin to make God-honoring life choices. And we begin to respond properly to conviction as opposed to shrugging it off. We allow the Lord to do business with us. And specific sin issues start to be addressed. And we see the world from a different viewpoint. We see it through a biblical framework. His framework. Because he's enlightened our hearts. Now the next thing he addresses here, and we've touched on it a little bit. But the next matter that Paul raises in verse 19, it reads a little clearer if I read it together with verse 18. So listen and see if you can pick it out. Verse 18 again. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Did you hear it? It's power. It's God works his power in our favor. He doesn't wave a wand and fix everything, but he works his power in our favor. And the idea is echoed by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, in his letter to the church at Rome. He writes to the Romans and he says this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That's power. To work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Like I said, it's not all easy and fun. But God is in it, and he is over it, and he is working it for our good. Now, these verses are important. They're important to the the churches at Rome. They're important to the church at Ephesus. And they're no less important for our church, for Southridge, for us here today. But for the Ephesians specifically, the reminder concerning God's power was addressing a particular issue. Uh, Because in their culture at the time, they needed an an inspired confidence to address an issue that was quite problematic. And that was the dark forces that were at work in this part of the world at this time. Uh, 
witchcraft and sorcery and things like that were running rampant and yet Paul is saying that that is nothing compared to the all-surpassing power of the living God. In Acts chapter 19, verse 19, he tells a particular story, Luke does, he shares a particular story where new converts to Christianity at Ephesus came together and they brought these books and these teachings on witchcraft and sorcery. They brought all of it together and they had a communal bonfire and they burned the books and they did this for two important reasons. Number one, they were new converts to Christianity and so they were making the statement that we are going to follow only Christ. And so it wasn't enough for them to just put these books in a box and stick it in their you store it building. They, they needed to get rid of it. They needed to burn it as if to tell everybody we are following only Jesus. We want this out of our lives. And so the second thing is they had to get rid of the stuff to follow Jesus, but also because it represented evil and they wanted no influence, no symbol of lingering evil in their community and they burned them. And what they burned, the scripture tells us in Acts 19, that what they burned was represented by, it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver. That sounds like a lot of money. It's because it is. In last week's dollars, when I priced it, uh, you can't just press, price drachmas anymore at the Vancouver Currency and Bullion Exchange, but, but through what we know of their, of their currency at the time, it's 8.125 million Canadian dollars. Now, I don't know what it's going to be worth next week if the dollar doesn't turn around, but it's worth a lot of money. So this small community burned $8.125 million to say we're following only Jesus Christ. And interestingly, right after that in chapter 19, verse 20 of Acts, we're told that because of their communal sacrifice, it says this, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Power. God took their sacrifice and because they were faithfully committed because they were his people, because they were included in Christ, because they were sealed by the Holy Spirit, and because he's for them, he did what only he can do. And here's the thing. He's for you. And so I wonder, as his people today, if we rally around the idea that we want the Lord, the word of the Lord to increase for our families. If we want the word of the Lord to impact the people in our church, to have a mark on our communities where we live. And in particular, when we start thinking about the personal connections, we want the word of the Lord to influence and transform and change and redeem and seal in the lives of people that we love and do life with. I wonder what that means for us in terms of abandoning idols and if you think about it, outside those doors on the other side of that wall are the words, it's our mission statement, love God, change the world one life at a time. And because we believe that, because we believe that Jesus Christ, as Paul says here, trumps all competing forces. Because we believe that, just like the Ephesians who said, we're going to get rid of sorcery and we're going to get rid of witchcraft. Because of that, we are committed to living this out. We're committed to abandoning our idols that take our focus off of Christ. And we're committed to looking only to Jesus in order to become more like him in this life now. Because it matters. And so again, if you're a Christian, I have a question. Are, are idols getting in the way? Brent talked about this last week when he talked about fashion. You know, fashion can pull you in and drink the Kool-Aid. We can get wrapped up in idolatry accidentally 
and intentionally, but accidentally it can happen. It can, it can bleed into our lives. And before we realize that we're wrapped up in something that's taking our eyes off of God, you know, sports teams, kids and sports, it can become an idol. Like warning, it can become an idol. Some of you know that. You've seen that. It can draw us out of fellowship with others as we press into a sport or an activity. It can pull us out of fellowship with believers. It's not that we're saying it's going to replace God, but it can, take, it, can, it can bleed down our connection to God and God's people if we're not careful. Sometimes it's just being too exhausted to spend time in his word. I know some of you work hard. I know some of you work two, three jobs. I know some of you are workaholics. I wonder if sometimes our exhaustion with life doesn't pull us out of studying God's word. Sometimes our personal hobbies and our indulgences, they, they leave us with more month than money. And so even if the Holy Spirit presses into something and he's burdening us with something and he's calling us to give faithfully back a portion of what he's given us, sometimes because we're not there spiritually, we're drained, we don't respond in the way that he calls us to respond. See, even Christians, if you're not a Christian, this is what you need to know. Even Christians hold on to the old way of living sometimes, too much. But because Paul was imbued with the fullness of the knowledge of what it meant to know Jesus better, he writes to the churches on how to continue in this evolution, in this faith journey of becoming more like Christ. And in Romans chapter 12, Brent shared this briefly last week as well, or he touched on it. In Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, he gives this instruction to the church at Rome. He says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And then he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's power. That's power. That's the power of God at work in the lives of, of his people as we press into him. Maybe you're not there yet. I mean, if Christians can hinder their own walk with Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives by holding on to things of the world, favorite sins, etc., then it seems possible, plausible that non-Christians can do things to hinder their own spiritual journey. And if God is attempting to awake a person and to uh, help them see a bigger picture of who Jesus is, it seems that it's possible that we could be distracted and therefore miss the message. But know this, There's no power like the power that he exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. There's no power like that. He took a man beaten and murdered and he raised him from the dead. And it says this in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 19. His incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heaven, in the heavenly realms. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given. This is Jesus now that he's talking about. Not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things, all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over every thing for the church. We're the church. You're the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's who this Jesus is. There's no power 
like the one exerted in him when God raised him from the dead. And here's the thing, I was dead in my sin. Dead. Totally sold out, committed to living a life of sin, pushing anything to do with God and godliness to the fray. And I don't say that for effect, it's true. It's true. If you went to my hometown and talked to some people, they would be surprised to know that I was a pastor. They'd be like, you let him in your building, really? It's, it's, I was committed to a sinful life. And yet, he raised me from the dead. And he wants to, and he can, and he will save anybody who will call on that name because there's power in that name. And he's calling you. If you don't know him today, he's calling you. Revelation tells us this. I stand here at the door of your heart and I knock. And if anyone would invite me in, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And God will do this new thing. Do you see him working in your life? Do you sense that something spiritual, I'm talking to the non-Christians now. Do you sense that something spiritual, something you might call it weird, is going on and you can't quite explain it? I went to work one day in the fall of 1996 at a job that I had had for six months working beside the same two women that I had worked at since day one and I suddenly, suddenly, found out, realized that they were both Christians. And I thought, hmm, strange. And they started talking to me about God and inviting me to church and sharing Jesus with me. And I remember the one lady at lunch one day downstairs in our lunchroom saying, Kirk, you should come to church with us. I was like, I'm not going to church. And they just kept on me. And it wasn't abusive, but it was like, where did these Christians come from? And then one day I went to my volunteer position after work. I worked at the Moose Jaw Police Services. I worked in victim services. And the police corporal in charge of my division, he started inviting me to church. And I went, finally, because I liked him. And quite honestly, I wanted him to shut up. <laughs> and then he invited me to Easter with his family after church one day. And I went to his house and we had Easter dinner and we celebrated Easter. And I remember him reading the scripture of the resurrected Christ. And I remember him praying. And then he started inviting me to other things. He started inviting me to men's ministry events. He invited me on a men's retreat. And most importantly, he started praying for me. And things began to change. And when I told my sister about all of this, because she was a Bible-thumping weirdo out here at Trinity Western University, that's what I called her. Because I was indifferent and lost. And I started telling her about this, and she said, well, we've been praying that for you, that God would surround you with Christians. And I went, whoa. Now, if I insulted anybody at Trinity, that wasn't my intention. That's where my heart was, right? Trinity is the beginning of the change of my life for eternity because my sister went to that school. Some things began to happen. She began to pray to the Jesus Christ who is the power of everything on earth, in earth and on heaven. And God changed things. And I couldn't deny that. And before long, I didn't know these words. I'd read these words. But before long, John 5, 24 became real in my life. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. That became true in my life. What about you? Where are you at with this Jesus? If you don't know him as Savior, then I would encourage you to seriously investigate him and see if he's not the one true God. For some of us, for some of you, that means finding a safe place to get questions answered. I get that. For others, all of us actually, it means studying and spending time in his word and allowing it to change our thoughts because Christians, you need your thoughts changed on some things and only God can do that. I need my thoughts changed on some things. My theology is not perfect. If he's not real, 
He won't change your mind. Because he can't. But he is. And he will. And so I think investigating what he says in his word is going to help. It's certainly not going to hurt. Christians, you've got you to gotta not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, right? Hebrews 10, 25. We've got to come together in fellowship. We need to encourage and support each other and the work that God is doing in us and through us. And we need to look at only Jesus, church. We need to look at only Jesus as we work to become like him. Now, if you want to investigate Jesus more closely, I would love for you to indicate that on a connect card. It's in the seat back pocket in front of you. I would love for you to scribble something on there that says, I need to know more. I want to understand something. I don't get this. I would love to know that. You can drop it off at the welcome desk after. You can leave it on your seat if you want to be inconspicuous. I'll find it. And one of our pastors will call you this week. Me, one of the other pastors, will call you this week. We would be happy to meet with you, to talk to you, to try to help you answer your questions. Understand, we come from a particular school of thought. We think Jesus is all, and that's what we're going to represent. But we want to help you answer those questions. You can come this morning as the worship team leads. You can come up here and, and I'll be happy to talk to you. I'll be standing down here singing, but I'll be happy to talk to you about Jesus and the difference he's made in my life and how I think he can make a difference in yours. You can talk to your Christian friends about what it means to cross over from death to life. And I hope you will. I hope you will. And as this morning, as we sing, I wonder, will you listen to the Spirit of God? Will you trust him to lead you? You're here. You're with God's people. It can make the difference between seeing Jesus as just another good moral teacher, just another good guy, good intentions, between the difference of seeing him that way and of seeing Jesus in HD as God's own son, because that's who he is. So as the worship team makes their way back to the platform this morning, I want to leave you with the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 11. In verse 28, he says this, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's calling. He's been calling. Um, investigate Christ. There's power in Jesus. Will you stand with me as we pray? Father, we pause to thank you for time in your word today. God, thank you for people like Paul who were enlightened, uh, who understood what it meant to follow Christ. And God, as, as a church this morning, we want to gather around each other, support, love, and encourage each other. God, we want to support people that we know who do not know him in this saving way. And so God, for those of us who are Christians, would you burden our hearts today with the names of people, whether they're on our list or not, that need to know Christ. And God, would you give us courage and boldness to live out a Christ-honoring life, to speak words of love and truth to them. And God, would you, would you have a part for us, I wonder, to play in helping draw them into relationship with your son? God, do what only you can do. And as we praise you this morning, Lord, for those of us who believe, God, we do so with humility and thankfulness for what Jesus has done in our life. We have crossed over from death to life because of your great grace and your great love. God, may this time as we sing bless you and may it be an encouragement to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.